Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We have a big episode for everybody today. We are going to relive some of the most shocking moments of the past two decades in Harry Potter fandom history. It's such a big episode. It's such a big discussion that we're doing it across two episodes. And we're joined today by one of our friends, Andy. Hey, Andy, welcome back to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back again. Andy is the founder and webmaster of HarryPotterFanZone.com. So like us, he has experienced all of these moments that we're going to be talking about over the next two episodes. And you're down in Australia. I think it's winter there, right? It is. It's cold and rainy here, but I am ready to dive into the Pensieve and look at some shocking moments. Actually, this is good because we'll be talking at points, I think, about how like, oh, wow, it was summer. That's so crazy. You know, we were hot <laughs> as hell. And Andy will be like, I was cold. I was cold. I sat inside. Remember that the summer of Potter doesn't land quite the same. This yeah, right. of winter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But speaking of shocking stories, your site, HarryPotterFanZone.com, actually won a J.K. Rowling fan site award back in the day. What year was that? And that must have been really shocking for you. Oh, it was incredible. That was 2007. So it was like literally a couple of weeks before Deathly Hallows was published. So I was kind of all gearing up for that to be the biggest story on the site for the year. And then I woke up one morning and there's a fan site award email, which was just incredible. Now, who does that email come from? Not Rowling herself, right? One of her people, I guess. Yeah, Jay at J.K. Rowling. No, it's yeah one of her people. <laughs> and like I thought it was a joke at first because like it's such a surreal thing. You know, you make a fan site for the fans. You'd never think the person who created the universe that you're that you're blogging about will they really read your your work and see the things you've built. So like it was yeah. just an amazing thing to get. That's really incredible. And then she said a couple of kind words about the site on her site. That is so cool. And then they give you a little graphic that you can post on your site. They do, and it's still there today. <laughs> I love it. It's never going away. Nice. And that's probably the size that you have it on the site right now. It's in the footer. The size that you have it, that's probably the exact size they sent it. Oh, that was like right? HD yeah, yeah. for 2007. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. So we have this huge HD graphic, and yeah, it's like a 90 by 90 pixel little <laughs> thing at the bottom. You should try to contact That took people. a minute to load on 56K. Yeah, right. Andy had to set it to download overnight so he could get it. <laughs> well, anyway, great to have you here. And we're we're excited to have you back because, like I said, you you lived it all. So actually, speaking of websites, it's time to jump into our discussion. The most shocking Harry Potter moments in fandom history. We will be going primarily in chronological order. And Micah, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, you uh, you stole my transition, though. So thank you. Uh, do it nice again. Job. Pretend like I didn't say it. No, I'll no. I'll edit it out. No, no. Wink, wink. No. Okay. We're going we're gonna to roll with it. But yes, speaking of uh, recognizing fan sites, one of the, uh, the big moments, uh, I think safe to say in our world, was when Emerson and Melissa... Anelli from the Leaky Cauldron were invited by J.K. Rowling to her home to interview her following the release of Half-Blood Prince. And I think this is a huge deal, right? I, I think it really kind of solidified at the time the relationship between the author and the fan community. Obviously, as you mentioned before, she would give out fan side awards and recognize um, you know, the different websites that were out there, but but this was kind of a step beyond that. And I think that 
we were all really excited to see what Emerson and Melissa experienced during their time with her. Yeah. It it did speak to the connection between the fans and the author. And I remember they, maybe it was just Melissa, I don't know, but they wrote about um, the experience of getting that invite and getting that call because can you, I just can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Not only are you going to interview her, you also will be doing it at her house. Is this unbelievable? Well, yeah, she got the call. I remember the call was personally like rolling herself called, I think Emerson, he was saying, um, and it's just like, can you imagine getting a phone call, especially like that time in the middle of Harry Potter mania, being a big fan and getting a call from JK Rowling. It's unbelievable. Like, I think this falls under the shocking category quite well because it really did also blur the lines a lot more than they had ever been blurred um, in going to JK Rowling's house to interview her. That, that was a heck of a lot of um, validation and a heck of a lot of trust also. Yeah. I mean, if I was JK Rowling, I'd be like, are these people crazy? Might they steal something out of my home while they're here? They probably had secret cameras set up. I actually remember this because I was chatting on AIM, which is AOL Instant Messenger for anyone under the age <laughs> of you. 20. Um, and he like stepped away for a moment and then came back and was like, you're never going to believe who just called me. And I was oh. like, who? And he was like, I can't tell you. Oh, no. <laughs> what, a, what a monster. I was like, what a tease. Guess who called me? Why would you can't do say. that? Um, but later they filled the staff in on everything. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very exciting. And right. if I remember correctly, you jokingly talked about stealing something from her home, but I think she gifted each of them with what would become a Horcrux. Yeah, Melissa yeah, got a ring. ring. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, what did Emerson get? It's like a necklace, maybe? I don't remember. Tom Riddle's diary? <laughs> maybe a cup? A sword. I think he got a cup. A sword. Yeah, I don't know. I, I remember Emerson gave her a key the to his key city. key to Laporte. I was, <laughs> I was just thinking that. J.K. Rowling has the key to Laporte, Indiana. <laughs> what she's always yeah. wanted. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what Emerson got either. But I'm trying to Google it. Well, look it up. I think it was the cup. That does ring a bell. I, I think you might be right. And then, of course, this was the interview where the delusional comments went down. It was Emerson's fault. Uh, He called Harry Hermione Shippers delusional. And then Joe said, well, no, Emerson, I'm not going to say they're delusional. They're still valued members of my readership. I will say that, yes, I personally feel we do know that it's Ron and Hermione. I do feel that I have dropped heavy hints. And it goes on. But yeah, this this really stirred up the community. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've always been a Ron and Hermione shipper just because it was so clear and apparent in the source material that that's where things were going. Um, So I didn't feel personally shook by this. I knew people who did. Um, I can say, though, that I was shook over uh, the retconning of this you know, probably a decade later, when in an interview, J.K. Rowling conceded that she would actually think that Ron and Hermione's relationship might not have fared as mm. well as she had hoped. Mm. And I, I took that personally. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> a lot of people did. That yeah. was like running a website myself. That was easily one of the biggest Harry Potter stories that we wrote about on Hypable. Our particular article went viral, I think, because that was just such a, a shocking statement. And Harry Potter was still, what well, what year was that? 20, 2012, 14, something yeah, like that. Yeah, somewhere in that range. I think it was 2014 because I was looking up earlier 
the, to see if we talked about it when it first happened. And I think at that time we were doing episodes so infrequently that it just never came up in conversation until way later on. Until we're Laura not touching back. this. <laughs> Laura brought it back. May 31st, 2007, the first Wizarding World of Harry Potter lands was announced for Universal Orlando. This had been rumored, but the announcement and the idea was so exciting because it would be the first time we would get to truly step into Harry's world. It's a 360-degree experience. The movies are cool, but they're just sets. You know, you look up, you just see lights. You don't see... It's not as authentic of an experience as the theme park would go on to be. I will never forget there was a live web stream that occurred... I can't remember if it was midnight UK time or midnight US time. Either way, it was an inconvenient time for poor Stuart Craig, the production designer. I remember he was a part of the web web stream. And he and I think somebody from Universal announced the Wizarding World theme park. And this was back... This was 2005? Oh, no, sorry. 2007 that it was announced. Of course, we didn't have high-speed internet. It was just this little window. And it wasn't on YouTube. It wasn't, you know, through Instagram or TikTok. It was just on a website. And you tuned into this little live stream. But it was very exciting because it was a midnight announcement. A couple fun facts about this. While they were building the theme park, while they were planning the theme park, it was codenamed Project Strongarm. And they called it that because it was a reference to strong arming Disney. This was their this was their Mickey Mouse. You know, this is the biggest franchise they would have. And remember, Universal I might bother some people when I say this, but Universal stunk before Wizarding World of Harry Potter. There wasn't much there. It had definitely grown a little stale. What, at Universal sure. Studios? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I agree with that assessment, but I'm a big fan of Universal Studios and I've been going there ever since I was a little kid. Um, So it could be that it's a place that holds a lot of nostalgia for me. But I do remember visiting Universal when they were partway through building the Wizarding World Edition in Islands of Adventure. And I just remember that feeling of seeing like the turrets of Hogwarts, like peering over the fences that they had padlocked shut around everything. And I was like, oh my God, I want to go in there so bad. This uh, (laughs) Project Strongarm, was this common knowledge or did you get this from the book you found in that random bookstore about the Wizarding (laughs) World? No, no, no. I wouldn't call it common knowledge, but I I know it was out there. It got out there somehow. I I always thought that Strongarm had to do with uh, the method by which you're carried around in in on the ride on forbidden journey the way the fact that it's like this overarching arm it may have been a reference to that too there may have been a double meaning there but i remember hearing i feel like maybe from a universal person later on Mm. that it was referring to strong arming you know putting their arm around disney's neck and choking them to death because they were going to kick butt (laughs) and to be honest it, it really was for for being announced in 2007 we had to wait three whole years to get it uh, before it yeah. you know debuted in in 2010 it was worth the wait but it was really nice when we were worried about maybe like the last book coming out what's next for potter etc to have this sort of promise that there was going to be you know not only more harry potter stuff but a themed land like a, a new a place we could all call home um was really yeah. kind of exciting And this also just made me realize i think at the time were there any other harry potter attractions in the world Andy's got an interesting fact that blew my mind. We'll get to that. But I don't think there was anything else at the time. There wasn't a studio tour. There wasn't a shop. There weren't 
other attractions. This was it. This was your chance to go into the Wizarding World. Yeah. When did the exhibition start? It was when I was in Chicago, so it was at least 08. Uh, okay. Probably 09. All right. Okay. So the so answer is no. Close. <laughs> but it, again, that's not all encompassing like like the Wizarding World is. You know, a 360 degree experience. No, the exhibition would never even let you take photos. So uh, apparently, Rowling and her people were talking to Disney as well, and that was the original plan. But from what I've heard over the years, Disney wanted too much control. And a good example of this is that Disney. I don't. I don't know this fact for sure, but Disney's the type of theme park that would have wanted to put Mickey Mouse into a Harry Potter cloak. And sell that as a stuffed animal right, and have right. Mickey Mouse walking around, you know, Wizarding World. It's different now. You won't see that at Star Wars because Harry Potter really changed the game for how to how to create an immersive theme park environment. But also, I remember that Disney or that Rolling did not want any brand name sodas in the land as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, they really gave her like, I think, the right amount of creative control for Universal. She really did. And, and the quality of the food, like going into the three broomsticks and getting shepherd's pie and like the great feast, you just there was nothing like that being offered at, the, at you know, normal theme parks at, in that day before then. And it really, really right. forced everybody to up the game. Right. Can you imagine an alternate reality where Disney had the rights to Harry Potter and the Wizarding World? I can't. It'd be so weird. The other thing, though, it would be weird, but it probably would be as good as Universal did on mm-hmm. it. I don't know if it can get any better that, than what Universal created. And Universal, I mean, they wanted to create a Disney-level attraction. And they did. Mm-hmm. Now, Andy, I had no clue about this. There was actually a Harry Potter-themed land in Australia long before the Wizarding World in Orlando? Yeah, there was. I think most people probably have never heard of this except like a subset of Australians. But we have a theme park in northern Australia called Movie World, which is actually run by Warner Brothers. And in 2001, so there'd been one Harry Potter movie to date, they built a very kind of small-scale version of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And you could basically walk through like a themed Diagon Alley, a platform nine and three quarters with a train, a forbidden forest there was like an animatronic fort anglia and an aragog spider and the staff would dress in robes and you could buy like stuffed owls and all that sort of stuff and like it felt like a very very small kind of prototype version of what was to come but it lasted about a year or so and then it was i think it was demolished for like a matrix ride or something but (laughs) we had it first and for a very short time Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. Like, I feel like because Warner Brothers had the rights, it was probably easier to bypass a lot of that kind of legality and get it up and running. Yeah. Mm. Poor Australia, though. Like, now there's all these Wizarding Worlds all over the world, and Australia still doesn't have one, one like Florida does. Oh, one day, one day. <laughs> You'd have to think one day. Why not at Movie World? This theme park's still open, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I don't even know what's there. It's all kind of Justice League stuff at the moment. So, I mean, it could mm. do with a Potter injection. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting. I would love to see photos of this land. I might have one. I'll see if I can dig something up, some old archaic photo that needs to be scanned in. Yeah. Did you ever go? I went once in, I guess it was our summer holiday, so it would have been over December, January, but it was packed. It was it was a popular thing because, you know, the first wow. movie was huge here when it came yeah. out in I think, November of that year. Interesting. Interesting. Have you okay. been, though, uh, Andy, to the theme parks, whether Orlando or otherwise? Yeah, I've been to Orlando. I went in 2014 on a family holiday. So, like, that was amazing to say that I'd seen it and walked around. And Was Diagon Alley open at that point? It, yeah, I think it just opened. But 
That's like reporting on these things for so long as as an Aussie. It's kind of there's a serious FOMO element to this whole thing. So finally getting to see it and go to it was amazing. I was going to say we'd always hear from Australians who were complaining that they they were so passionate about Harry, but there was just nothing for Australians that was ever done. Clearly, they didn't know about Movie World. Yeah. And that one year they had a Harry Potter land. That one year, <laughs> that one time. And people in the UK complain too that there's no Wizarding World theme park there yet. Because I, I get that argument because Harry Potter originated yeah. there. Uh, come on. But they can go to like, you know, King's Cross and all that. Meanwhile, two Americans, Emerson and Melissa, go to J.K. Rowling's house. I don't see anybody in England getting that experience. I bet Snitch Seeker was pissed. <laughs> I think the Wizarding World theme parks are just absolutely amazing. It's one of the parts of the fandom that's just like perfect. Like I have no complaints. No big complaints anyway. Yeah, same. Okay, so October 20th, 2007, Dumbledore was revealed as gay by J.K. Rowling. We discussed this on uh, originally on episode 117, but also we discussed it exactly 400 episodes later on episode 517, just a couple of weeks ago. So we won't get too, uh, we won't really get into this today unless anybody has anything to add, but we we keep reliving this, so I'll just say at this time, yes, I stood up and applauded and apparently lost my mind for a minute or two. I was in Australia <laughs> when I found out about out. this. I had just landed, I think, between somewhere between Sydney or Melbourne doing Muggle Cast Down Under, and it was amazing to be doing uh, Harry Potter-relevant stuff while learning about this news. But this news, I heard about it on the normal you know, Aussie news in the cab or something. It was being covered everywhere. This was like non-HP outlets were taking the story and just it just was insane. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's probably also worth saying, I know you mentioned 400 episodes later, uh, Andrew, but the difference probably in our conversation back in 2007 versus what, what was it, 2021? I have to imagine it's slightly different. The world certainly is very different. I'll have to go back and listen. <laughs> I wonder what I said. Um. But worth noting that we are calling out the episodes where we really did go into detail for a lot of these news stories. So if listeners want to go back and give it a listen, um, I'm sure there's some fun stuff in in all these episodes that we're going to mention. Definitely. And our voices are probably slightly different, too. That's for sure. Oh, I know. We all sound like <laughs> children. <laughs> What's next on the timeline, Micah? Yeah. So not long after the Dumbledore announcement... Um, J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers filed suit in a Manhattan court against Harry Potter lexicon owner Steve Vander Ark and uh, several other defendants for publishing what was termed an unofficial encyclopedic companion to the Harry Potter series, saying that it infringes copyright and attempts to cash in on the successful brand. This is where Harry Potter fandom got ugly. Why do you say that? On Halloween, no less. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, we were we were all riding the high of like the Dumbledore gay reveal. I think, you know, just there was a lot of goodwill. The book had ended, but like there was still a lot of hype. And then the author is taking to court not only one of the Harry Potter fan sites, but a Harry Potter fan site that she had given a Harry Potter fan site award to, uh, you know, just not not too long before. So Awkward. Yeah, it was very awkward. And I think that there was a lot of confusion because none of us were law majors about what this meant and why this was occurring. 
But I do want to go into the comments that she made about the lexicon on um, the fan with the fan site award. Uh, she actually quoted and she's, she said, this is such a great site that I have been known to sneak into an internet cafe while out writing, meaning writing the Harry Potter books and check a fact rather than go into a bookshop and buy a copy of Harry Potter, which is embarrassing. A website for the dangerously obsessive, my natural home. Like, yeah. Yeah. well, well, let's, before we go on, let's contrast that with what was said during the court case. Now, the case went to court the following spring, Rowling arguing the book was, quote, decimating my creative work and was, quote, an act of portrayal. She also called it, quote, sloppy, lazy, and it takes my work wholesale. And she said was unsure if she'd publish her own encyclopedia if this book was published. Wow. A little threat there. So, what a difference. Well, this book eventually was published and we don't have an encyclopedia. So I guess she was right. <laughs> It's fascinating to compare the two comments about the lexicon and the book. Does anybody remember, though, how the book looked prior to the lawsuit? I guess we I mean, it wasn't published, so we don't know. But does anybody remember hearing details? Well, I know what they had to cut out. And this because I know this because there was a a book way earlier that was unofficial called The Ultimate Unofficial Guide to the Mysteries of Harry Potter. And that book, the one was books one through four. Um, by Wizarding World Press, uh, used summaries of the plot of the books, but could not, you know, directly quote the book. Right? It's it's kind of like you. There are rules that you have to go by so as not to infringe copyright, and you can summarize or add your own kind of analysis without actually using the quotations or the excerpts from the book. And once you start using the excerpts from the book, which is what the lexicon would obviously be doing um it becomes another matter entirely um so it's not paraphrasing it was like exactly duplicating and it's fine as a website but once you try and sell it as a book you're in trouble but like what's the example of a direct quote steve vanderark used in the original version it's hard to say but it would probably be yeah. just like it would be lupin explaining a grindy low or um, mm, you know, okay. like if, if, or, or, or what happened to Slytherin and then there'd be like, there is no witch or wizard who went bad. It wasn't in Slytherin says one of them in the chamber, you know, in the movie. Yeah. yeah. So it would be something like that. I was under um, the impression the initial idea was to just publish the lexicon in book format. And that, that does that sound familiar. Problem. Uh-huh. But I could yeah, be misremembering. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I, I have the book that actually came out after the court case. Um, and it is very thorough in terms of, you know, everything that's mentioned, spells, everything that you can find on the website is, is in it in some form, but there are no real quotes. There are no real like direct copyings. So they, they, they definitely shaped up, uh, and changed that to, to be able to release it. Part, I think part like of you wonders- one thing that, oh, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say what I found kind of interesting about this in like thinking about the time when that happened at the end of 2007. Like, we just had the final book. And I think, like, as fansite people, we'd always had quite a kind of symbiotic privileged relationship, not only with Joe, but with Warner Brothers, because, you know, we would cover these things and we would provide details and information for fans and they would get publicity in return. And I, I remember thinking at the time, was this the kind of the end of the fansite model? You know? Would they, mm. like, strong arm us, as it were, and say, look, this is maybe a symptom of something further that's to come with the next evolution of fan sites and kind of yeah. would that be the end of us in our 
traditional model. Because was Harry Potter fans set around when, or Harry Potter fans were they around when the season desist went out at the end of like 1999 to all the Harry Potter fan content? Yeah, people? we were after that, which was lucky because like having Harry Potter in our domain name, I don't think we would have survived that. Like I was just a naive kind of 10 year old at the time. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, because that totally happened. And this is the first time since then that like high profile legal action was taken against a owner of a fan site or a person who was running a fan site. And so it did feel a little portentous. It felt a little, un- little shaky. And watching, you know, your hero J.K. Rowling cry on the stand, or reading reports that she was, you know, moved to tears by the betrayal of Steve Vanderark, like it, it, it tensions the fandom itself was being, I don't want to say manipulated, but being asked to take a side, and it was a very high emotional, high stakes kind of but, game. Yeah. To to Andy's point, though, I wonder how much of that was influenced by Warner Brothers, right? Because it was J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers who filed the suit. And if you right. look at some of the language that we quoted, it's probably more being driven by lawyers than it is by the author herself. Just if you look back to 2004 versus what was said in 2008, I guess it would be when the court case actually happened. But mm-hmm. the the other thing worth mentioning too is that you know, we found out later on, but you know, with the MuggleNet book, what will happen in Harry Potter Seven, that which was published in two thousand six, that J.K. Rowling really wasn't happy with that book having been published, but she didn't take any legal action against it. And mind you, this is a year before the lawsuit gets filed against Steve Vanderark. So that was different though in that it wasn't using quotes and stuff and my understanding of that situation was that emerson didn't try to get jk rowling's blessing he just did it and i think speaking of betrayal i think jk rowling kind of felt like hey i invited you over to my house my house you used my bathroom i gave you a cup you gave me the key to the city and now you're publishing a book about my work and you're not getting my blessing It it was a bummer for sure yeah. Yep. There's definitely a process and a practice. And now after the RDR books, if we were talking about like legacy, um, that kind of copyright stuff that they were debating on was not formed yet. Like these types of court cases were writing IP and copyright law as it was going on. Law is all about precedent and nothing like this had ever been tried before in that manner. So now there's certainly a process and there's people you notify and there's rules that are very, very set in stone that you understand what you have to do if you want to make an unofficial book uh, about Harry Potter. And back then it was just a free-for-all and until somebody said something. So this sort of case was always going to happen, but I don't know that it needed to be J.K. Rowling versus one of us, you know, one of our Harry Potter brethren. I think Andrew's right, though, as far as the blessing goes, because if you look yeah. just a year later in 2008, Melissa publishes her book, Harry, A History, which was more focused on the fan community, and J.K. Rowling writes the foreword to that book. Yep. Right. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about making a Harry Potter book. Yeah. If And I sad to say, I don't think our website at the time did that the right way. Agreed. It was wild to see J.K. Rowling in a New York courtroom with an owner of a fan site like there's pictures of all that it was a very unsettling time it was like our oj simpson trial it was (laughs) (laughs) basically you know it to be too young to have understood yeah to have understood what was going on in the early 90s when that happened like it felt like that steve vanderark later wrote 
if I wrote it. <laughs> was that the title of OJ's book? If I did it? I think, yeah. If I did yeah, it, it was, yeah. yeah. Before we continue talking about the most shocking Harry Potter news events, let's talk about shockingly comfortable undies. Me Undies, this week's sponsor, believes you should be comfortable at your core. That's why they make the softest undies and fun prints so you can wake up every morning excited to put on your favorite pair. Laura has said it best, Me Undies offers you unbeatable cloud-like comfort. This is the type of product that you try and then you immediately wonder where it's been all your life because there's nothing else like this out there. They are so comfy cozy that they'll add a little extra joy to your day. And then there's the prints. You can go with simple colors, or you can go with some unique designs, like undies with corgis, baby Yoda, chips and salsa, dolphins, avocados, and so much more. They've got other products too, most with the same prints, including shirts, lounge pants, and robes. Never run out of undies or worry about skipping laundry again with the Me Undies membership. Each month, replenish your basics and build your collection with styles that are anything but basic. Styles that let you be the truest version of yourself, right down to your core. And no pressure, you can always skip a month if you want. Plus, enjoy discounted pricing, controlled shipping, and exclusive early access. Love your butt and get the membership. Me Undies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. Me Undies also has their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. To get 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. That's MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. Okay, March 2008. Warner Brothers announces that Deathly Hallows will be split into two movies. One book, two movies. We originally discussed this, reacted to it in episode 136. The official talking point at the time was, we are going to do this to do the story the justice it deserves, which may be true, but they were also doing it to double their box office potential. I mean, that was abundantly clear. They never said it, but duh. Um, Reportedly, it was executive producer Lionel Wigram who suggested the splits. Producer David Heyman and screenwriter Steve Clovis had to be convinced. Apparently, they weren't at the time. I have a funny story here. This is an experience I'll never forget. So I was in college at the time, and I was working in my school's library when the news broke. And I only had my phone on me in the library, and I was like, oh, my God, it falls on me to write this up on MuggleNet. And, of course, this is huge news. This is, like, massive news. So I leave the library. I bolt back to my college dorm, a dorm I was sharing with somebody. and. Uh, you know, typically when you share a dorm with somebody, you, I know where you, this is you going. Give a, you give a courtesy <laughs> knock or something, right? You know, that's what you do. It's respectful. But this was an emergency. I had no time to knock. I had to get in there, grab my laptop, and post this on MuggleNet. Well, <laughs> I barge in. I barge in. And to keep this family friendly, I'll just say he was doing something very personal and private that he would not want me walking in on. So luckily my desk was right next to the door. I popped in, took my laptop, thought to myself, oh gosh, and just ran back out of there. And then wrote the story up from the library. But uh that that is a moment I will never forget and also can never unsee. Um <laughs> I was split in two parts. Did you ever follow up with your roommate to be like, hey, I'm sorry. 
for bursting in on you during a personal moment, but I really had to post a news story on MuggleNet. <laughs> I can't remember. I probably, I feel like maybe I texted him after and said sorry about that or something. I don't know if I told him why I had to burst in either. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have accepted that as a good excuse. <laughs> he probably curses your name to this day. <laughs> maybe he was watching Harry Potter. You don't know. <laughs> no, I could see his laptop screen. He had something up of him and his girlfriend. And uh, look, I just, I won't <laughs> We're not go any further. Take it was... that line of thought any further. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was uh, a crazy moment for me. The, the big thing about this is what a precedent it later set, uh, splitting yeah. the final film in fantasy franchises. This was like almost comically duplicated. Uh, throughout the years after this but i would also say to mixed effect like i love that the hunger games did it i thought that was incredible well you're in luck because i looked up the box office returns of all these other splits the deathly hallows one did go well the final harry potter movie movie eight made more money than deathly hallows part one and i think it made more money than all the other harry potter movies um don't quote me on that, though. But it did really well. It was a success. And I think we can all agree parts one and two are, are good in their own ways. Yeah. But like you said, Eric, the other book to film adaptations that split their final book had mixed results. For example, Twilight Breaking Dawn part two did better than part one. And that was the first movie after Harry Potter to do the split. But The Hunger Games Mockingjay part one actually did better at the box office than part two did. Mm. And one of the theories there is that people were just tired of the Hunger Games by the time we got to part two. Because, you know, that's a sad, dark story. It's like, how much of this do I need? (laughs) And then Divergent, another popular YA book, turned into movies. The first one did good. But from there, the box office revenue started going downhill. They decided to split the final book into two movies. Then they never did the final part of that book. And then there was talk of bringing it over to television. Oh, it's going to be a TV movie instead. Don't worry. That never happens. That one, that was a disaster. Fans never got the final part. Sounds like a and they never will. precursor to Fantastic Beasts. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Hope not. Hope yeah, not. I can't imagine not getting that closure, especially if you're really into the series. Yeah. So, you know, there have been these mixed results and we'll see if uh, also The Hobbit, you know, that was one small book that was turned into three movies. And I think that did well. But we'll have to see what happens in the future because there really hasn't been another huge book to my knowledge. And of course, everything's moving to streaming now. So a lot of these studios might be like, if we want to adapt something, take Shadow and Bone at Netflix. There's plenty of other uh, take Bridgerton. You know, instead of making movies, they're like, let's just do it on television. They they just split things up across the season instead of two whole movies. And I think to your point there with like the, the kind of the advent of streaming services and that sort of thing, like audiences are just much more discerning now and they're much they're less willing to wait, I guess, an entire year for a single piece of source material to come back in another form. Like, if, if you can drop an eight-part series on Disney Plus in one go, like, what is the what is the reason to wait a year to split that same thing into two parts in the cinema? Yeah. yeah. The boom, the big boom of TV and streaming and, like, serialized stories being told on TV is just absolutely changed also the way that movies were made because people don't go into a movie looking for the kind of story that they were getting with Harry Potter because now there's TV for that. But do you all remember how you felt when this was originally announced? Deathly Hallows, two movies. 
probably excited, right? Because it meant Harry Potter was lasting longer. I mean, yeah. we could listen to episode 136. <laughs> Find That'll out. Tell Let's us. hit play. 136. I remember feeling really stoked because it was the first time that it felt to me like we were getting enough like, or an adequate amount of screen time to cover everything that happened in the book. Good point. I can't even imagine, like, in an alternate reality where Deathly Hallows is one movie, I cannot imagine how much would have been left out. Especially after Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't, when they made the announcement, didn't they also say, like, we had been considering splitting the books, like, way back to, like, Goblet of Fire, we considered doing... Two movie. I think they specifically said Goblet of Fire was when they first yeah, it was. thought about it. It would have been so too that, much. That, yeah, yeah. It, would have, it would have been, but I I I don't think it ever would have worked, but I still want to go to that universe where they did that. Yeah. yeah. Because um, would they have gone back to a single movie per book? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They would have split Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince as well. Pandora's yeah, box is too open. much. Yeah. Why, what do you mean too much? I think it would have probably killed the franchise. Like there you can't split that many it it just won't work yeah we what you said about um franchise fatigue right with uh divergent or whatever it was that's yeah. uh, mocking jay that's real um people get tired of oh there's another one coming out but wait a second y'all there were eight harry potter movies right, that's but it's a just lot of one movies more. it still went well yeah, yeah but can but you imagine 11. if they had split movies four through seven into two films each that would have been a lot. I see your points in present day, but I don't know if there was that fandom fatigue back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And also, I think if you look at Hunger Games as an example, like from memory, like uh, Catching Fire and the Two Mockingjays came out in like 2013, then 14, then 15. Like at least with the earlier Potters, we did have that longer break. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a factor to kind of alleviate too. the fatigue. I do think they would need to have really good split points for each of these books. Yeah. So that would be a factor. I remember, I'm sure we were talking about that on the original episode yeah. about yeah, where this, they where they can split it. Yeah. It's show notes. That's one of the bullets here. It's um, a huge question. How, how do you make them one, but two separate and distinct stories? Do you break it with a moment of suspense or one of resolution? Where should the split be made? I, I think though, if, if we were to do it today, that whole idea of going all the way back to, Goblet of Fire and splitting, if you had it available via a streaming service versus having to go to a movie theater, it definitely would work. Yeah. I just, I can't see it back then, but but who knows? I mean, I, I also think of the the Chronicles of Narnia never made it past the third book either. Yeah, that's a real shame about that. I know, because uh, they were so good. They were, they were all very good, yeah. But nothing well, was Potter. And, but Netflix is now adapting those books. Oh, are they? So- yeah. Is it that was another example shows. of a really TV well show. cast. Yeah, yeah, very well that was, cast. The, yeah. Those films were so oh, well cast. The cast for those was perfect. If they split the other movies, which now I'm like really into this idea, they would need a clear beginning, middle, and end, just like Deathly Hallows parts one and two needed, just like the other Harry Potter movies needed. But mm-hmm. also in terms of franchise fatigue, it's a, if it's a really great story, I don't think, I don't know if people really care. Also, how many James Bond movies have there been? And I know they're spaced out several years. Yeah. But people don't get tired of Bond either because the movies are good. The yeah. Daniel Craig ones, except for Quantum of Solace, are really good. Yeah, but you also have to remember <laughs> that Bond has had a much longer time to establish itself than Harry Potter had at that time, right? 
it's easy for That's, us to at, at this point be able to say, yeah, I mean, any any Potter content that comes out will probably do very well. But I think that in 2003 or whenever it was that Goblet of Fire came out, you had an incomplete book series that was inspiring an incomplete movie series. So it, it would have been really hard, I think, for them to pull that off. I agree. Yeah. I, the demand, too, would have dominated just look at Game of Thrones, right? The demand dictated that the series be completed before he even finished writing the books. Yeah. Yep. So just a couple months after this split being announced, we learned that Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was going to be delayed the movie. And we talked about this on episode 157. So just about three months before the film was supposed to be released, uh, they decided to move Half-Blood Prince to a free weekend in July of 2009, making it an eight-month delay. Uh, so fans were going to basically have to wait another year to see this film. And do we think, like looking at it now in this timeline, do we think their decision to split Deathly Hallows influenced their decision to move Half-Blood Prince? Maybe. I just remember people being really upset by this because they really pulled the rug out from underneath fans. We thought we were three months away from this movie, and then suddenly we had to wait a whole other year. Yeah. It was hurtful. Yeah, and this also changed the release cadence, right? We were used to getting Potter movies in the fall, and then it moved Half-Blood Prince to the summer, which I think ended up working out well because we were all, or some of us were at a convention might have been Dallas. That would be summer 2009. So not Portis because that was oh, 2008. So, it was San so whatever the next Ascatraz. one was. San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually ended up being a ton of fun. But I do remember at the time feeling like, oh, man, like I'm always in a very like fall mood when I think about Harry Potter. Right. Like you think about back to school, you think about the themes in the story is getting darker, and it did feel weird to move it to summer. Well, for Andy, it was a whole different... Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was the exact opposite. <laughs> but I remember at the time wondering if there was something wrong. It was like, is there something right. wrong with this movie that they're having to push it back? Well, I was looking at news reports around this time, and Warner Brothers was like, don't worry, the movie is actually 100% finished. There are no reshoots. We just want to delay it. And that made it hurt even more. We were like, it's done and you're still making us wait 11 months. And the other thing I was thinking about was, I think it's very rare to delay a movie when it's only when it's supposed to come out in just a couple months time. Of course, this past year with COVID, that changed everything. But before that, if you were going to delay a movie like they have with Fantastic Beasts 3, you do it years in advance. Right. So that was another reason this was shocking. Yeah. But again, now that looking at this, I wonder if they did it to close the gap with Deathly Hallows Part 1. Well, that was what was announced in the um, reveal by uh, the Warner Brothers president, Alan Horn, at the time, uh, was the one who actually announced this in a press release. And he happened to say towards the end of the announcement, uh, well, if you want a silver lining, this film will be coming out a lot closer to Deathly Hallows Part One than Deathly Hallows than, than it would have otherwise done. And while he meant well, that was the one line that for some reason people really focused on. And that didn't go over well either. It did the <laughs> silver lining aspect of like, it just really, there's nothing wrong with the words. They were just interpreted with such vitriol. 
And when I later saw the screen, the pre-screening of Half Blood Prince in Chicago that they did by total accident and happenstance, I walked up to David Heyman and introduced myself afterwards. I said, I'm Eric Skull with MuggleNet. I want to let you know I love the movie, whatever. We were asked to wait aside, like stand aside and wait and like wait until after the focus group. Then there were like six guys that came out, including Alan Horn. They were going to kill you. They had to make sure that we didn't like that the news didn't leak or anything because they had gotten death threats. They had like actually told us like there were actual death threats when that delay was announced and they couldn't have had a security breach uh, for the films. And so that even though they were excited that we loved the film, they needed to know that we weren't there because there was some kind of press leak and that people because they needed to know if they were in danger or not. Wow, that's I mean, we're talking about actually being shocked. Yeah. Wow. I thought they were going to threaten you to not reveal any spoilers about the movie because you I are mean, te- uh, you would technically be considered press because yeah we were asked to yeah we were asked not to say anything but then I went on Hogwarts Radio later that day and talked all about it <laughs> but <laughs> traitor they could have come no, on cast and talk about it you must I have. called you guys and you were at the beach and you didn't want to do an episode hey I was at the beach come on. Uh, no, I remember, though, how funny it was. But we ended up talking about it on the next MuggleCast just like a day or two later. And he's like, I wasn't at the beach. I was cold. <laughs> you were at the beach. <laughs> I was in the blanket. <laughs> so, Andrew, you actually had a reaction video, though, to yes. this I did two devastating videos. announcement. I had no. a lot of free time on my hands in 2008. So me and my <laughs> friends, a uh, couple of which were involved with the Harry Potter fandom, we did one reaction video where we're all just staring at the camera. We can link to it, I guess. We're all just staring at the camera, and then we all start breaking down crying over the news. But then I, I remembered that I also did a trailer parody with MuggleCast alumni Matt, and I'm going to share my screen because... We we did a parody of the Half-Blood Prince trailer, pretending that this was a new trailer announcing the release date delay, or at least responding to the release date delay. So I'm going to share my screen so you guys can watch it. I can speak to snakes, too. They find me. Whisper things. Did you know, sir? Then. Did I know Warner Brothers was going to tell everyone November, but then delay the release by eight months? No. <laughs> I totally forgot about this. Oh my God! That's seriously so well done. this time. Yeah, that's, right. Yeah, yeah. over fifteen thousand views. How about I know fifteen thousand people watch that. <laughs> And the other video has 40,000 views. And that's just us staring at a camera crying. Oh, 2008. No, I'm I'm curious, though. I mean, for Andy, like when this type of announcement gets made, obviously you're you were planning on doing certain types of coverage, right? Knowing that a movie was going to be coming out. Now you have a whole year, essentially, to kind of fill the gap. I'm just curious if you can remember back then. Yeah, honestly, like I was planning a trip to the States to try and time it to come to the premiere and do some other press stuff involved with it and like i had to completely change that and yeah i had university in july of 2009 so i, I didn't get to be involved with any of the kind of press for that movie so Aww. for me that announcement was a huge kind of it was a big bummer and it it felt like a commercial thing it felt like they mm. wanted a blockbuster to spearhead the like the u.s summer film cycle and because the, the thing was done like i couldn't see any other reason why they would do that so yeah for me that was 
was a low point in my uh my fandom experience. Aww. Mm. All right, so moving on, November 8th, 2010, we got past that release date delay. The movie came out. Warner Brothers purchased Leavesden Studios and, I guess at the same time, announced the Harry Potter Studio Tour London would be opening spring 2012. So Leavesden Studios was where they shot all eight Harry Potter movies. It's where they're actually filming Fantastic Beasts as well. Other movies obviously have been shot there over the years, including a Batman movie, I think. Hmm. Um, several big WB movies have shot there. This was a big deal because like the theme park, we were being afforded the opportunity to jump into the Wizarding World in a very real way. They, of course, have the original Great Hall there. They have Diagon Alley. They have so many props. You can spend all day in there exploring everything. Um, It's like two wings and then an outdoor wing, too. It's just a huge space. These days, you can get butterbeer there, too. Of course, they have a store, lots, and you can take pictures of everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they learned from the exhibition, because the exhibition was absolutely out by now. It was 2009, by the way, uh, that it started. Uh, so April of 2009, it had been to a couple of cities by the time this announcement came out. And yeah, I think that they were already planning on doing something different and obviously something bigger, actually being to being able to go into the studio where it was, see the actual sets, which they can't tour on the exhibition with the sets. So it was meant to be like the definitive kind of like home of the Harry Potter movies. And it was where they were filmed. So it was like super extra special and exciting and shocking. And really this is the UK's theme park. If you want to look at it that way. I mean, I know we always hear about how Orlando, Los Angeles, you know, Tokyo, like, but you know, you get the real thing. I know there's no roller coasters, but it's the real deal. There is a lot of queuing. <laughs> Britons <laughs> love to is. queue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But maybe uh, a they, pricey ticket too. They seem like they do a great job with it in terms of switching things out and, and even theming it at diff- different times of years. We always used to get those updates pre COVID about how, you know, whether it was around Halloween, they would have people dressed as Death Eaters walking around. And you can, I think there were even experiences that you could purchase where, the studio would be shut down for for certain events, maybe even like around the holidays. Yeah. Yep. Christmas. I think there was a Valentine's Day one as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So one more story to discuss today, and then we will discuss the second half in next week's episode. Micah, tell us about Pottermore. What was that? Uh, you can go listen to episode 231 of MuggleCast. And we'll see you next week. Oh. <laughs> Michael wants to get out of here. He's got somewhere to be. No, uh, this was a relatively well-kept secret and came as a pretty big surprise. You know, further ramping up the hype was how they spent a few weeks teasing it before it was officially announced. And um, if I'm remembering correctly, weren't the letters of Pottermore given to different media outlets including fan sites yeah and you had to solve whatever the puzzle was it's like coordinates right like the letters were in random places i i'm i'm being very like you pop the coordinates into google maps or maybe they had their own special version and then you went into street view and then you saw a single letter virtually placed in a town something like that heck of a thing you know, it's one of the, <laughs> it I don't know that the execution was as seamless as they wanted, but it was important that they were still involving the fans. And if I could kind of mm-hmm. 
help set the scene a little bit, I would say that our goodwill and excitement about Harry Potter collectively as the Harry Potter fandom was very much going strong into, you know, because the last movie was out. Um, but by the time of this announcement, it was kind of waning. There was a marked difference, I think, in our general excitement. There was this feeling that although we had delayed it a couple of years because the movies took a while to come out after the book ended, although we had delayed it, the Harry Potter series was in fact coming to an end. There was nothing new. There was nothing that was going to be coming. And Pottermore came at the, the most perfect time to inspire us. Oh, wait, there's more. And I don't know how much of the details were revealed as far as what Pottermore was going to be. But I, I think a lot of our ideas were that it was going to be like the encyclopedia or just right. stuff that didn't make it into the books in a new format. Yeah, I mean, it was it was billed as a companion piece to the core books. You can mm. read each chapter in a copy of the original story, then go to Pottermore and experience the chapter in, in a different way. And if I remember correctly, they wanted to hide a lot of the characters' faces so that it didn't influence your interpretation, yeah. especially if somebody was going for the first time. Uh, didn't want your interpretation to be influenced by what they ultimately put up on Pottermore. So I thought that was exactly. really uh, a cool approach to it. Yeah, I really liked that personally. Yeah. And the artwork was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I loved looking at that. Yeah. It was such a big deal because we were all sad that Harry Potter was ending, or so it seemed. And the fact that the site is coming along called Potter More, More Potter, and J.K. Rowling is going to be adding a lot of additional material to it. This is back in the day when, you know... In recent years, J.K. Rowling would go on Twitter and be like, Evanesco means clean up poop. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, God, oh, why do you have to say that? But back in 2010, 2011, 2012, people were very excited to get new information mm -hmm. about Harry Potter directly from the author. And Rowling was promising that with Pottermore. The site uh, went into beta in August of 2011, then opened up in April of 2012, it was also the exclusive home of the electronic version of the Harry Potter books for a while. Right. Mm -hmm. In partnership with Sony. Oh, yeah. That and my original hard drive. Wasn't that? My first computer. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't they also available? Uh, maybe maybe I'm thinking of Pottermore uh, itself, but on Virgin Atlantic, didn't they do a deal, if I'm remembering that? Oh, yeah. You could like read the books while flying on your seatback screen. Right. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting collab. Yeah. But probably the biggest thing initially was that you were able to be sorted. And for a lot of people, this this was huge because this was an official source sorting you. I'm sure we all remember what houses we got sorted into. I think, Eric, it changed your life. It did. <laughs> yeah. I, th I thought I was running around in Gryffindor robes, but that night I burned them in a bonfire. <laughs> wow. No, you yeah. didn't. You're joking. No, I still have. One. Wait, did anybody? Um, but I wish it was true. Did anybody's original uh, sorting assignment differ from what house you thought you were? Well, yeah, mine. Yeah. But what about you guys? Mine was consistent. I've always been a Ravenclaw. <laughs> I was a Ravenclaw, but I was erroneously sorted into Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about it now? Like I did the test again and got Hufflepuff, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> of validity. You're a hat star. <laughs> I think I was sorted into Gryffindor. I think. 
I don't remember being shocked. So there had to have been enough people that questioned it because we we did that whole thing about how weirdly the houses were equally represented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were each earning the same amount of house points. That was and the it, tell. That I didn't think really makes sense. Yeah, no, uh, it was always balanced, yeah. right? Right. They yeah, had, I mean, they had to. I can't, I get it because otherwise, if everybody's getting sorted into Gryffindor. Then the house point system is going to be all thrown up it, off. It wouldn't be right, competitive. I get that, but which was it? Right, the most accurate sorting of all time, direct from the author or a social media site where everything's balanced. Fair. Ooh. Yeah. No, I was. I, still we would all prefer the former. No, I think yeah. we would prefer the former. We want our true house. Yeah. yeah, we want the true house. The inner game house points thing is not at all on the same level. But I, I do consider it to be the definitive sorting. I think that's still one of the coolest things they've ever done. Um, you know, for fans was this Pottermore sorting quiz. Right. I was actually a hat stall between Ravenclaw and Slytherin. Interesting. I chose Ravenclaw. <laughs> That's cool. That's the safer Sorry, choice. Andrew. Amanda in the Discord is pointing out that uh Pottermore assigned everybody a username, like you couldn't pick. That's right. Yep. Your username. Well, you could choose. You could choose between three. I think. Yeah. Right? How to spell right. something? I was cat seeker. Yeah, strike lumos. Yeah, mine was snitch <laughs> something, but I don't remember. So I remember yeah. the reason they wanted they didn't allow us to pick our own names is because they wanted to be friendly for kids. So they were concerned about you know people contacting kids on a social network like this. So their reasons were valid. It's just for us adults, I think we felt a little shut out. We're used to being able to pick our own username. You know, I want to be Andrew Sims, but I can't. I, I have to be cat seeker or dog <laughs> catcher seeker. or elephant. Yeah, consequently, petter. it was harder to remember the name then. Yeah. Because it was some just right. too randomly chosen. I had to create like a couple of accounts over the ages because I yep. kept forgetting it and it wasn't. And being the number saved by- cat seeker yeah. something, something, something. Great. Yep. Thanks a lot, guys. And this was before, uh, you know, the web browsers were offering to remember your username and password. Yeah, so you had to yeah. write this down. <laughs> yeah, and to that point, Andrew, I think like thinking about this is 2011, 12, like from a technological standpoint, what they were able to do in the browser at that point and with the amount of traffic they were getting, like Pottermore was a pretty spectacular technological feat. It was amazing. It was. It was built on Flash and that was on the way out. I think that was their biggest mistake with Pottermore because... Imagine if that site still existed today. It wouldn't like some web browsers straight up do not support Flash anymore. Right. So it wasn't the best idea in terms of longevity. But yeah, it was a very cool site. And I think in some ways it did remind us of the original JKRowling.com that we all loved so much. Right. It was very detailed. Yeah. There were little secrets. Remember, you could click, you could find hidden things to click in each piece of artwork mm-hmm. and then you get some bonus Thing. Yeah, they yeah they did a really great job with rolling out all the new chapters for the different books, and I think the additional information is really what most of us were there for, right? All the you know little tidbits that we got about characters and and kind of behind the scenes looks at, at some of the the writing that she did. I think that relates directly back, Andrew, to your point about the website, and so um, it it was. It was a great like surprise for us not long after everything kind of wrapped up as Eric was talking about earlier. But then <laughs> twenty fifteen it became Harry Potter BuzzFeed, basically. <laughs> 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 
it's it just the whole look and feel of it changed the whole content structure of it changed and i think that really put a lot of people off to it and i know we spent a lot of time probably on many episodes talking about how we really didn't like how these these changes were were implemented but probably the 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 one saving grace was the Patronus quiz, right? Everybody flocked <laughs> to that outside yeah, of that. Well, eventually they added it, but eventually. I don't think it was there at lunch. But that was more like the Flash, more like the Origins. That was more like the original Pottermore back then. Yeah, it's built to last now, hopefully. But you can get sorted still. They did remove the chapter-by-chapter chapter stuff, which I thought was pretty surprising because that was the main selling point of Pottermore, that oh, and the yeah. additional J.K. Rowling content. And that'll never see the light of day, I don't think. That's no, and it was all this artwork that they paid to have done, and it was amazing art, too. I just think it was trying to be something that it it wasn't, right? It, it, it shouldn't be necessarily a definitive news site, which is what I think it ultimately ended up becoming. And, you know, they were treating things, too. And I always remember Andrew bringing this up, like, they, they wouldn't be definitive about some of the things that they were saying but yet they're the definitive source so how do they not know like they would speculate on brown presumed dead that's a shocking story for you (laughs) presumed dead either she's dead or not yeah you work with author just ask your boss (laughs) do you think they saw the success of fan sites and thought they could replicate the model except they would be the quote-unquote definitive source that honestly, I was a little afraid of that. I thought that's what they were going for because they would also break all the big news there. They're the official yeah. source, so they can be the first to report all this. Yeah, and to that point, as I think someone mentioned before, that this was a kind of co-partnership, certainly in the early days with Sony. Like, and this kind of ties into probably some of the stuff we'll talk about next week. But this was kind of the very first example of the Harry Potter world kind of being opened up to J.K. Rowling and somebody, and. That is certainly a path that we are now going down. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting point. Like this is the, the movies and the books have finished and this is how we kind of fork off into the next era of fandom. Yeah. Partnerships with other companies and they all want something specific. They're either furthering their own technology or yeah. Very good point. And remember, we started joking that it should be called Potter No More, and we bought PotterNoMore.com, <laughs> and to this day, it still redirects to HarryPotterFanZone.com. It does. They get a fair bit of traffic through that. <laughs> <laughs> it never did have as much content straight from J.K. Rowling that I wanted. But... PotterNoMore.com, aka yeah. HarryPotterFanZone.com? No, yeah. no, HarryPotterFanZone's great. The, uh, the, the Pottermore site. Even, they've released chapter bundles, and maybe there wouldn't be any new content excuse me any new content or something you know good specifically and it's mm-hmm. it's just not a reason to go back to the site even yeah. when it was specials i i do feel like though they've they've tried to capitalize on things that they probably would have been better off trying to capitalize on when potter was kind of in its heyday like i'm thinking about the fan club um, and and I think at yeah. one point they did even talk about trying to create a podcast of of, of some sort, and I just feel like yeah they missed the wave there. I totally and, forgot and, about that the podcast. Yeah, I don't think it ever came about. No, but again, who would host Good it? Good luck. Who are the guests? Good be? luck. 
No, I mean, the thing about a fan-made podcast is that we can speak openly and honestly about what's going on in the world of Harry Potter, whereas an official Harry Potter podcast, it'd be everybody being like, oh, everything is so amazing all the time. Oh, my gosh. I just can't believe it. <laughs> right. And there would yeah. be no genuine, like, critical reading of the texts, which is what makes no. this show so fun. Yeah. Yep. Actually, I remember I interviewed for a job with Warner Brothers. I don't remember how... Did I tell you this, Andrew? You're shaking your head. You did. Yeah, because it was in LA, I remember. Yeah, and the person I spoke with was talking about how there were going to be big changes coming to the content side of Harry Potter and how they were going to be working on all these new and different initiatives. And I'm trying to remember if this was prior to Pottermore being launched. Um, certainly prior to a lot of these other things that we've seen come out over the course of the last couple of years. Maybe, because it sounds like that's what WizardingWorld.com became, you know, just this content yeah. shift. Yo, Micah, so check it out. We're going to start making listicles. Have you heard of these things before? They're <laughs> super rad, super popular on like BuzzFeed.com. Odd numbered lists only. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes part one of our two-part discussion on the most shocking news events over the course of the Harry Potter fandom to date. In part two, out next week, we will talk about J.K. Rowling accidentally confirming that she was working on a Harry Potter encyclopedia. We'll talk about Cormoran Strike. We'll talk about Fantastic Beasts being announced and everything that's come out of that over the past couple of years. And then we'll talk about when the author announced four Wizarding World schools and then teased that seven more were coming and they never did. We will also talk about The Cursed Child and the earliest reports about what that play was going to be. We also have some honorable mentions and a little forward-looking game. So lots to get to in next week's episode. All right, so it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, June 21st is the 18th anniversary of Harry Potter Book 5, the longest Harry Potter book ever written. How many chapters were in Harry Potter, Book 5, Harry Potter, and the Order of the Phoenix? Andy, do you know this? Is it 36? 37? 36? It's 38. Damn. Close. Yep. Not bad. Yep. 38 chapters. Correct answers were submitted by Fort Voldemort, Shane Stradling, Tonks, Husband's Lover's Goddaughter, Slytherin Princess 07, A Lost Packet of Drupal's Best Blowing Gum, Persistent, perky, pernicious, petty, problematic peeves. A creepy potato that you grew for a first grade project that has haunted you ever since. Badger Baroness, Daddy Dobby, Katie Notbell, Hermione number one fan, the sock that freed Dobby, the sorting hat is always watching, bring back Jamie, hashtag, Wolfstar hates quack, guac, quack, I don't know, and many others. Congratulations to everyone who got that right. There were no wrong answers. And uh, for Daddy Dobby, be sure to check out our social media. There should be a new graphic <laughs> up concerning that joke from last week. <laughs> and uh, there's no new Quizit question this week because it's a two-part episode recording on the same date. So you will get a new Quizit question next week. All right. Thanks for playing. Yes. Andy, thanks for joining us. We're going to have you on next week as well. Again, his site is harrypotterfanzone.com. Check it out. Excellent site. It's great having you on. And my mind is still blown about the theme park in Australia. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'll have to, have to see if the Matrix is still there or there's something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go report on it for us. <laughs>
Speaking of our social media, be sure to follow us. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you would like to contact us about today's discussion, you can email MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. You can also call us two ways. You can call us on the phone. We are 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. You can also use your phone to record a voice memo in the app that should be included on your phone and send that file to MuggleCast at gmail.com. No matter how you call us, just try to keep your message no more than a minute long. Last but definitely not least, we would love your support at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We use your support to grow the show, to spend more time on the show, and to enhance the show. And in exchange for your support, we hook you up with sweet benefits, including monthly bonus MuggleCast installments. There's a new one out this past week. You get access to our live streams where you can see us. We are currently recording on Thursday nights. We recently turned the cameras on, so that's been a lot of fun to see each other as well. You also get access to our exclusive Facebook group, our exclusive Discord group, and so much more. So again, that's patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Thank you so much for your support. It truly means the world to us. Even if you can't support us on Patreon, we do greatly, greatly appreciate your listenership. And that concludes this week's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Maura. And I'm Andy. Bye, Bye. everyone.